And so we're, we're moving on to Psalm 2, and it's incredible the different connections that Psalm has to one, to Psalm 2. And the title of today's lesson is Determined Pursuits versus Determined Promises. Determined Pursuits versus Determined Promises. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. This is the word of God. I want to present a group discussion question for all of you that just kind of ties into a lot of key things that we're going to be studying about this passage. And the question is this, what evidence of rebellion against God do you see happening in world events? And are there any examples that have been in the news or in history that you can think of? So I want you to think through that. And the question is, what evidence of rebellion against God do you see happening in the world events today? Are there any examples that have been in the news or in history that you can think of? I think the whole transgender movement is is probably the most stark rebellious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The world wouldn't see it that way. They would see it as just a freedom of expression, but um, it strikes at the very core of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how, those are great observations, by the way, it's kind of interesting how Pastor was striking at this in his, his series earlier this summer, about the very things that seek to undermine God's, his plan, his design for us, everything he wanted man to experience and joy. So, that is good. Okay, so as I was thinking through this question, I was wondering, I'm like, huh, if I were to, you know, pinpoint somebody either locally, nationally, or internationally, I was like, who would it be? And the first person that came to mind, it's weird, but how many of you remember the name Madeline Murray O'Hare, 
Does that name sound familiar? Okay, if you know who she is, can you tell us about her? I think Greg, you'd, yeah, you too. She was uh, an avowed atheist. Yes. And she led the the march starting with removing, reading the Bible in school. Mm. And it went on to removal of other core beliefs from the mainstream. Yeah. What's odd is she's been gone now, I think, 30 years. Yeah. Her son finally was saved Mm. about 10 years ago, I think it was. Wow. Wow. And he came right out and said, I think he was talking to Franklin Graham when he said it, that my mother was absolutely wrong in all she pushed. Mm. Incredible. Greg, you want to add anything to that? That's exactly right. Yeah, no, you nailed it. That's That was exactly the case with this woman. And in thinking about our lesson, I was thinking, I'm like, this was a woman who didn't just fight something that was taught in school. She fought directly against God. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She was founder of American Atheists. It's an organization that still exists today. And I think they have something like 380,000 members in, across the U.S., uh, about atheists. Um, but she's best known for how she fought to keep any mention of God out of schools. A few years ago, a movie was made about her. I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was on Netflix, The Most Hated Woman in America. On one, And you know who gave her that title? Oddly enough, it was Newsweek. Newsweek gave her that title back in the day. Um, that's how far Newsweek has, I guess, come. Um, on one hand, she rubbed a lot of conservatives the wrong way, but on a spiritual level, she was a prime example of someone who wanted to do what? She wanted to cast off all godly influences out of children, is what it came down to. So she stepped on the public scene in 1960 and was brought to her attention that her 14-year-old son, William, had to say daily group prayers in his Baltimore Junior High School. She began a crusade to end prayer in public education and filed the lawsuit Murray versus Curlett. Her case to end prayer in school was dismissed both at the state district courts as well as the state appellate court. Ultimately, the case was combined with Abington School District versus Shemp and argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. So eventually, her, her, um, her lawsuit became entangled with a bigger one, arguing for generally the same thing, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1963, Mary won her fight against school prayer. The Supreme Court decided in an 8-1 vote that school mandated and initiated prayer violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment and unconstitutionally breached the barrier between church and state. So yeah, uh, this is a woman who was relentless. She didn't give up. I mean, she was determined. She was committed to this fight against taking prayer out of schools, Bible reading out of schools. And this is what she said in her opening statement before the court, before the Supreme Court. This is what she said. And you can actually find this on the American Atheist website. It's still on there under Our Founder. Your petitioners are atheists. 
And they define their beliefs as follows. An atheist loves his fellow man instead of God. An atheist believes that heaven is something for which we should work now. Here on earth for all men together to enjoy. An atheist believes that he can get no help through prayer, but that he must find himself in the inner conviction and strength to meet life, to grapple with it, to subdue it, and enjoy it. An atheist believes that only in a knowledge of himself and a knowledge of his fellow man can he find the understanding that will help that will help live a life of fulfillment. He seeks to know himself and his fellow man rather than to know a God. An atheist believes that a hospital should be built instead of a church. An atheist believes that a deed must be done instead of a prayer said. An atheist strives for involvement in life and not escape into death. He wants disease conquered, poverty vanquished, war eliminated. He wants man to understand and love man. He wants an ethical way of life. He believes that we cannot rely on a God or channel action into prayer, nor hope for an end of troubles in a hereafter. He believes that we are our brother's keepers and our keepers of our own lives, that we are responsible persons and the job is here and the time is now. Atheist.org about history. So she didn't stop there. You would, you would think that the, here's a woman who she scored a victory in court over, um, over getting prayer and Bible study out of school, but she, she didn't want to stop there. She wanted to try to take out In God We Trust uh, out of the coins, removing Under God taken out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, now, she was unsuccessful in this, of course. And after uh, she tried and failed in these areas, she was reported to have said the following. I love a good fight. I guess fighting God and God's spokesman is a sort of ultimate, isn't it? So this is a this is an example mentioned in secular history. It's it's obviously tied to our our country, but were there good examples that we could look to in the Bible about this, about who fought against God directly in the Bible? And I was thinking, you mentioned Genesis. How about Pharaoh? Pharaoh was literally fighting against God almost. And unlike Miss O'Hare, he had the unique experience of, of experiencing God's wrath in real time with plagues. And so he was arguably one of the first examples in human history of someone who, who actively, purposely decided to fight against God and lost. But what's interesting about this is you, you, we have the account in the Bible, right? It's there. But if you're looking to the secular examples that confirm this, it's really interesting how the secular people who wrote about this, how they define it, how they explain it. And I don't know, have any of you heard of the Ipuer papyrus? Ipuer, I think it's called, papyrus? So just to let you know, so there's a lot of people out there who think this didn't, the Genesis account of Pharaoh and Moses didn't happen. They try to discredit discredit it because it's they say it's a fairy tale, it's make believe, it's in Genesis, but there's no actual proof. There's no like secular document, right? As if the Bible needs a secular document. But there actually are secular documents, and one of them, huge one that was discovered in the 1800s, called the Ipuer Papyrus, and it's basically 
According to the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, it is a text, uh, it's, it was a text written in Heriatic, uh, ancient Egyptian language, around 13 BC. So you have an Egyptian, Egyptian scribe. He was a writer who actually wrote about the plagues. He wrote about it in real time. And let me read you an expert from, from this scribe who wrote it. Remember, this is a secular document. Okay, and this is what he says, and I quote, Indeed, the river is blood, yet men drink of it. Men shrink from human beings and thirst after water. And we know that's parallel to Exodus 7, 20, 18. Here's another. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water. Same verses. Here's another one. Indeed, hearts are violent. Pestilence is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. Death is not lacking. That corresponds with Exodus 9.15. That I may smite thee and thy people with pe- pestilence, Exodus 7.19 says. So that's pretty, pretty fascinating that you have an Egyptian who is writing these accounts, basically proving or supporting what the Bible said with precision. And the second one, if you want to look at the account of of a secular document is a, there's an Egyptian Egyptologist David Roll. Have any have you have any ugh, have any of you ever heard of him? Uh, so you know that he is a foremost authority on on writing about what happened in during this time, but he is not a Christian, and he actually shows the evidence that he cites. He cites the Bronze Age slaves lists that contain all Hebrew names. The grave goods of an un- underclass discovered at Avaris, which is now the biblical, which was the biblical place of Goshen, and he f- discovered an Egyptian plague pits full of skel- skeletal remains. So, what is the point of all this? Why am I bringing all this up? Even without supporting evidence, obviously, the Bible doesn't need secular documents for it to be proven true. It is true. It is the Word of God. But with regards to our study. We have to look at this through the lens of God's omnipotence, his all power. And so you have two cases here. One, somebody in our country who tried to fight God in the schools. Uh, And then you have a biblical example of somebody who tried to fight God and his people and lost. Both of them lost. So no one, even since the beginning of time, has been able to fight against God and win, is the point. No one. And they will never be able to do that. Because of his power and his sovereignty. Okay, and we can go on and on, looking at different examples. But why are these? Why did these people do the things that they do? They do it because they, they, it stems from an, a motivated, ongoing, proactive, diehard resistance to God and His laws. Is what it comes down to. So we could say the enemies mentioned in the psalm that we're going to study. They've moved from now a defensive position where they just don't, you know, they're avoiding God and his laws. Now they want to fight against God. So why would they be so foolish to do this is what we have to ask. And most importantly, what are the implications of God's response to all of it? We're going to dive into this. But before we do that, and I have other questions for you, we're going we're gonna to do a recap of what we studied last week because it ties so closely into this psalm. Okay, so when we're looking at Psalms, we talked about the differences between a person who receives God's blessings and a person who doesn't. 
Do you remember what the source of this blessing is for those of you who were here last week? How does a person obtain God's favor versus a person who does it? What is that source? Exactly. Scripture. Scripture. It's, it's uh, following Scripture. God and Scripture always. So God is what brings true prosperity because of the change that he brings in, into a person. And so we talked about this as godliness happening on the inside. And so what does that do? It begins to bring you joy and happiness. And you start to have victory over a lot of aspects. in your. It's a continuous victory that happens over the course of the time of your life. And so we also talked about a person's like a tree. And in response to the position of grace that we have, right? So in Psalm 1, you have God who took the person who is blessed, who lives according to God's word, is like a person, it's like a tree has been plant, transplanted by streams of living water. So you have God, right, who took the tree and put it in an area where there's life. And that is reminiscent of our position of grace, isn't it? Right? He took us from a destructive path, a path where we were dying, and he brought us into a path that was filled with life. And he was, he was able to do that. Um, let's see here. So in a nutshell, Psalm 1 was basically two individual lives, two different foundations, two different outcomes, and one root source that divides both, which is Scripture, obedience to Scripture. And so if we're looking at the, as Psalm 2 as an extension of this, there's a lot of connections that we have to cover before we get into the study. So I want you to take a moment right now and look at the last chapter of verse, I'm sorry, the last verse of chapter 1. Look at Psalm, the last verse of chapter 1. What does it say? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, actually, sorry, <laughs> I messed up. It was the first verse of Psalm 1. What, is it, what does it say? <laughs> first verse of Psalm 1? Yes, sorry. How okay, very good. How blessed is the man? We hammered that point uh, last week. Now, look at the final verse of chapter 2, which is verse 12. What does that say? Do homage to the Son. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do you notice? What's the key word in these two passages that link these two together? They're bracketed, bracketed by this word. Can you, can you? Yes, blessing. It's a blessing. So it's a pronouncement of blessing. So in the beginning of the intro of Psalms, you have the definition of someone who, who's blessed, right? And somebody who's blessed lives according to God's word. That's the difference maker. And then at the end of chapter 2, which is an extension of this introduction, you have somebody who's blessed. Anyone is blessed when they take refuge in who? In God, right? So what's interesting about this, the reason why they're, they're bracketed together is you have somebody who's blessed because they rely, they depend on God's word, and then you have somebody who's blessed because of their allegiance and devotion to God himself. Scripture and God. That's the recipe for blessing in your life. There's other parallels too. 
Um, the wicked. So when Psalm 1, we we're talking about the wicked, right? Wicked person does this. Uh, the blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. And now in verse 2, we're, we're looking at a broader scope of the wicked. Now we're looking at rulers of nations, wicked rulers of nations. Or if you want to think about it also as states, nations as states who are just bent on evil, on wickedness, on overthrowing uh, anything that, have to do, that has to do with God. Um, let's see here. Okay, historical background of Psalm 2. So a lot of people, a lot of scholars, excuse me, they believe that this was a coronation ceremony. So they're thinking that this was a coronation ceremony or a hymn that was read to Davidic kings, like after the Davidic king line. Because for the immediate context of this passage, you're talking about people who would have... Um, maybe have heard this kind of psalm and said, hey, this is, we're having a ceremony for the new, new king, King Solomon or one of the Davidic kings. But there's also end time implications to the psalm because it was so quoted in the New Testament and you're looking at this psalm really highlighting the greater king. Not The greater king isn't David or Solomon or any of the Davidic kings. It was always Christ. So when we're going through the study, I want you guys to think about that. Um, so one of the, some of the themes that we're going to review in this psalm, Psalm 2, is you have themes of obedience, God's sovereignty. Uh, one of the core themes, obviously, is the Messiah's kingship, that he's going to have a universal, unilateral rule. And so for the people who lived during the time when this was written, during the time of David and Solomon... A king based in Zion, which this we're going to get into in this passage, it talks about the king that God has installed on his holy hill, Zion. I mean, that would have been huge. Zion, we'll talk more about that, but I mean, it's like saying, hey, we're going to have a king here in Woodstock, king of the world right here in Woodstock. So for them, it's like you have a king that was near. Um, but what, hap- what about the Israelites after the Davidic kingship? So now they're looking for a future kingship. They're looking more for a king that who, who would be the Messiah. And ultimately, it just all of it proved that God would always be in control. They, they would always have something to look forward to. So moving forward, how can we think about this psalm as we get into the study? So we think about it as a royal psalm. It is one of the royal psalms. Uh, good, good sense to think of it in terms of God's total kingship. His reign, his rule, his righteousness, right? And so that is uh, speaking of the ultimate royalty this world will ever have, we will ever experience as Christians, which is being under the kingship of the sovereign Messiah. And as we break down this passage, we're going to focus in on five dimensions of a divine kingship that God decrees universally. That's what we're going to study today. I'm going to break it down to five dimensions of a divine kingship that God decrees universally. So in a general sense, this passage tells us a story. Okay, It tells a story that mankind goes on the offensive against God and his king. The attempt is so futile that God mocks the vain attempt. God strikes fear with a word of promise to them. All right, is, What's the word of promise to them? To the evil rulers of the world? 
You're going to be subjected by a holy and righteous king. But he offers them a treaty of sorts. Absolute submission, allegiance to Christ. That's the only way for these evil rulers to escape. They escape from God's wrath and from God's judgment by swearing allegiance, by submitting fully to Christ. And that's it, right? We're done with class. That's it. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But it's the dimensions of this divine kingship that teach us about God's sovereignty despite all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world. The first one we're going to study today is the motive behind man, excuse me, man's chief goal when it comes to God's sovereign reign. What is man's chief goal when it comes to God's sovereign reign? It's this. It's his depraved determination. Mankind's depraved determination. Okay, what is the question? It is the key question that kind of builds the foundation of this psalm. What, is, what question is asked at the very opening in verse 1? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, in the, in the translation that I was reading, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they conspire to stand against God and His Messiah? Let's discuss this for a moment. If somebody were to ask you that, or even if you were just trying to to answer this question yourself, how would you answer this question from what you know about Scripture? Okay. I'm going to give you a little... uh, push if if you had to back that up with a story or um, verse in the Bible what would you use this for anybody Genesis 3, Genesis 3? well so what would your argument be line be like for that Craig Man desires um, his way his promotion rather than God's mm. man took the thunder out of my answer, man. <laughs> no, that's actually... <laughs> no, that is great. It ties in with my answer. It's great. Great observations. It, it, you guys are right. Um, ultimately, man is trying to preserve something of himself. He's trying to preserve the greatness, the greatness of mankind. Genesis 11.4, that's the verse I came on. And it said, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. What's their MO here? What's man's MO here? It's disobedience from the beginning, right? They didn't care to fill the earth, to subdue it. They wanted their reputation to be sky high. And so man boasts in his greatness, and that's what he wants to preserve ultimately. That is why we see the nations rage and plot in vain. That's what they care about most. And so they boast in these things, and in doing so, they boast in sin. Any people, any historians here? People who like history or uh, military history? Okay, I love military history. Um, So I have a military history book at home that I had to read in college. it It just ties into this whole boast of man so 
well that I had to I had to read it to you. So the Macedonian army, right, was led by King Philip II, who was Alexander's father. And this guy made headway in conquering a lot of parts in Greece before ultimately Alexander pretty much conquered the known world after his father died. But a playwright, right, there was a playwright during his time that was favorable to Philip II. He supported him. His name was, if I pronounce this right or wrong, you know, don't kill me. It's Menismicus, I think. So anyways, he wrote a play about his favorite king and the Macedonian army, and this was the army's boast that he wrote about. Do you know against what type of men you'll have to fight? We dine on sharpened swords and drink down blazing torches as our wine. Then for dessert, they bring us broken cretin darts and splintered pike shafts. Our pillows are shields and breastplates. And besides, our feet lie bows and slings. We crown ourselves with catapult garlands. I think that should be our new church motto. No. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, arrogance much? I mean, why would you be so foolish to think of yourself like this? Now imagine if you had a boast like this against God. What's even more foolish in this than having a boast like this against God? Is thinking in the first place that you can even fight against God, right? Man in a sinful nature loves to boast. But in this passage, it's not just the pointless boast that man has in mind. He's aiming at something, right? Look at verse 3. This is, this is the aim here. Let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. Okay? So here we have man's aim. Okay? It's a, it's a determination that he has. So let me ask you a question. How do you think the people of the world generally see God? What do they really think of Scripture and God's laws? Yep. Oppressive, constraining anybody else? I mean, we, there's, there's so many that we can name. Yes, out of date, old-fashioned, right? Some people have, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Fictional, all of it. Yeah, exactly right. God is the oppressor, right? He's the oppressor. His laws are oppressive. And so what does that speak about their heart? Is that they want freedom to do what? <laughs> exactly. Sin is doing whatever you want, free from God's law. That's what they want. But does sin really ever truly bring freedom? No, never. It, what it does bring is enslavement. And how do we know this scripturally? What does Jesus say in John 8.34? Here's what he says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of what? Sin. The rule of Christ, the righteousness of God's law, is not meant to enslave us. It's meant to bring us what? Freedom. Freedom from sin. Here's another one, Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is the freedom that Christ provides us. But it's not freedom for freedom's sake necessarily. Yes. 
Yes. Right. And so Greg has a good point here because why? In our natural state, are we free? No, you're, you're automatically, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Enslaved, essentially. Because that's the natural, uh, it's a natural course of man in, in original sin after the fall of Adam. So he gives us freedom to do the things of the law, to keep the law, and not to be bound by the things that made us enslaved to very things against the law. Think of your life before Christ. Think of the things that held you in bondage, all the things that entrapped us, right? We didn't want to surrender to God. And we didn't want to submit to his laws. Now, think about the freedom that came after Christ. Okay, He's the one who transplanted you, like we talked about in Psalm 1. He took you from the place of death to the place of life. Positionally, as far as grace, he gave you life in Christ. He brought you from slavery to freedom, from enemies to friends. But from the opening verse, how does, it, how does mankind respond to this freedom that God offers? How would you say they respond? Do they want it? Violent yeah, violent rejection at its highest. They're, they're to the point where they're act, actively fighting against it. It's a vain attempt, obviously, but regardless, they have an aim. Sinful mankind, sinful world has an aim of why they're fighting. And so the tenses in Hebrew show us something interesting. It shows us that there's a fixed determination. The tenses of Hebrew show that this is a fixed determination that man has to fight against against God. All right? It reminds me of like what we were talking about earlier with Madeline O'Hare, right? Did she did she quit when she lost? No, she kept going. She kept going until the day she died, until the day she was murdered, really. But that is such a small image of man in its totality of why they want to continue to fight in God. It's their nature. It's their ambition. It's their highest ambition, really. And it's easy to think that God is silent in all the shocking ways that man's, man tries to do these, do these things. Excuse me. But he's already responded. And verses 4 to 5 show us this response, and it's this. God's divine derision of mankind's pursuit. God's divine derision of mankind's pursuit. So it's God who holds mankind and its chief aim in derision. So what does that word mean, derision? I had to look that up. All right, I had to look that up. What do you guys think that word means? <laughs> well, no need, because I will, I will tell you the Webster's definition of what I looked up. Okay, derision means this. It's the state of being laughed at or ridiculed. It's an object of ridicule or scorn. God mocks them. Let me ask you a question. Why should God's laughter at wicked rulers bring you comfort? Why? Yes. Anybody else? And it's like when your toddler, the 
two-year-old, you know, throws himself in the hole. It's not funny, but I'm glad we sit there after a while. Yep. Anybody else? Yes, great, great observation. That's right. Actually, that's one of my points uh, coming up. So that's, that's good. Anybody else? I drove behind a truck yesterday, and on his back window, he had the words that said, I serve a God that never fails. I think he got the grammar wrong, but never fails. <laughs> um, and I think, like, that's what I think of when I read this verse. It's just God, what he has to do, never fails. These people are not going to get in his way. Uh, he is going to have the last word. Yeah. Exactly. Great observations, guys. So we need to take comfort in that. That's a good thing. Why? Because it shows us a lot about God and his character. Ultimately, God is not a respecter of man. Romans 2.11. That's a good old King James translation. He's not a respecter of man. And he has every right to do so. Why? Because he's sovereign in his being. He's sovereign in his judgments. And listen to Solomon's rationale for this. Proverbs one twenty four to 26 says this, Because I have called and you, excuse me, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It's God's words himself. It's God's um, awesome insight to answer that kind of a question. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. Man doesn't mock God. He can't. God mocks man. Why? Because it's exactly like what we were just talking about. He has a final say. He has a final word. That's his sovereignty. And so he has the proverbial last laugh in that sense. But God doesn't just mock man in vain though, right? Man has a whole bunch of empty pursuits. He has empty uh, mocking towards God. When it comes to God and he mocks, nothing is ever vain when it comes to the things that God proclaims. Verse 5. This is what he says. In anger, excuse me, he terrifies them. Sorry about that. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. So what does this mean? He's made a decree that he's going to strike fear into the hearts of his enemies. Okay, He mocks them, but that's followed up with a consequence that will happen. It's not just an empty threat. So the decree is this. God's divine promise of eternal kingship. That is how he is going to strike fear into the hearts of enemies. His promise of his Messiah. Verses 6 to 9. 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of earth, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So what are the core of these verses focusing in on? Or should I say, who is it focusing in on? Christ. Yes, God's Messiah, his chosen king. Christ is God's chosen king because he's the ideal king. He's the king who kept all of God's laws. And he is the king who will one day serve and rule as the ultimate example of God's sovereignty, his sovereign rule. So the idea of Messiah, excuse me, Messianic King takes root in 2 Samuel 7.13. 2 Samuel 7.13 is a good verse to all, for all of us to know why, because this is where God initiates the Davidic promise. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, so obviously we see somebody, the perfect king, who is later down the line. But the place where Messiah is going to rule is just as important. It's Zion. Zion is critical in God's plan. It's critical. It's huge. Because it is God's mountain. That's what it's known as. Zion was once called Mount Moriah. And does anybody remember uh, the backstory of, Mount, of what happened in Mount Moriah? Biblically? Yes, yes, very good. It's a place where Abraham offered Isaac to God, and it was once called Mount Moriah. And basically, it has become, I mean, it always was, the one piece of earth that God put more glory on than any other place in the world. So we could say that's the center of the world. That's the apple of God's eye, that little piece of land. And it is the Temple Mount now in Jerusalem, if you guys have been there. And there's... Uh, that place is so volatile because you have uh, the Jews who, who have allowed the uh, Palestinians, right? The Palestinians to have a mosque up there and there's just any little thing that happens. There's always a fight. Security has to intervene. So it's just volatile because uh, Muslims believe that's their holy site. But we know that it is God's. And he has proclaimed it, and that's where he came down, right? And that's where he will return. That's Ezekiel 5.5. 5. So the conditions and the, the duration of this kingship are also reserved for God's glory. So Christ is going to one day have an unconditional, unilateral, and everlasting reign physically on earth when he returns. The passage you're reading is so vital I don't know if I, if I mentioned this earlier, but it's, it was often quoted in the New Testament. It was, it was one of the passages in Psalm that is the disciples quoted. And it's interesting because of what they understood about the passage. So, so turn with me for a moment to Acts 4.23-26. to 26. Four twenty-three to twenty-six. 
So after Peter and John were threatened not to teach about Christ and release from custody from the Pharisees, this is what they said. And they quoted, they directly quoted this psalm. Okay, we'll start at verse 23. And it says this, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why were the nations insolent and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the Christ. You know what's astonishing? Astonishing about this quote when it came to the disciples? What God revealed to them about it. Look again at verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of the Father David, your servant, said. Okay, that's incredible for a number of reasons. They saw a part of Scripture fulfilled. And what did they understand? They understood that the divine inspiration of the Holy, um, excuse me, the Holy Spirit happened even in the Old Testament. And they brought, it brought a literal fulfillment right before their eyes. Earlier we talked about man's determination to tear shackles apart, throw off the ropes away from us, from God and his rule. A sinful desire of man is to remove, remove ultimately all of God's moral restraints and his requirements is what it comes down to. So, in looking at this passage, in understanding what the disciples saw, you have a concerted effort of the Pharisees actively trying to suppress God's ultimate moral requirement, his ultimate moral restraint, and his ultimate moral blessing in the gospel. They were trying to suppress the gospel here. So, it's incredible, it's awesome that the disciples see this, and they're like, hey, this verse is happening right before, their, before our eyes. They're trying to suppress the, the gospel of Christ. If you're still in Acts, you can follow along in verse 15 of 4. Verse 15 of chapter 4. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What are we to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread out any further among the people, let's warn them to not speak any longer to any person in this name. That was what the Pharisees devised. So you see the authorities here, right? The Jewish authorities were threatened. They felt threatened by Christ, by the message of Christ. And so you can see their thought process here. If they can kill the message of Christ, they can kill the idea of a Christ and the idea of a messianic king with the way the disciples were preaching means that there would be no king. And that's what they were trying to work so hard to get rid of. It ties back directly to the empty plot that the nations have. How they gather together to try and exterminate any mention of God in his word. But here's what they failed to realize. Wasn't Christ always on the throne? Right? That's what scripture teaches us. Before the mountains were born or you were brought forth 
or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Psalm 92. So Christ always has had the right to rule the nations. He never was off the throne. He always had the right to possess the ends of the earth. Why? Because God always had appointed him. He was always appointed king. So this begs the question, what kind of king will Christ reign as when he returns? Returns, excuse me, Psalm 2.9. It gives us a glimpse of the future. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So it's very easy to read this verse, right? That, that Christ is going to have a rod of iron and he's going to shatter them like a potter's vessel. And it's easy to think in a superficial reading that Christ is oppressive and he's cruel and it's almost like a dictator's reign, right? Like, like iron boot, iron hand. But that is not the case because Christ is not nothing like man. It shows firmness and strength, right? The rod is kind of like a twofold instrument of Christ's reign. He's going to shepherd people, but he's also going to be a strong leader. Now, to his enemies, of course, it's total helplessness, right? They're not going to be able to fight against God. They're not going to be able to try and resist his rule. So what does the iron rod do ultimately to to um, pottery. <laughs> it breaks it at the, at the smallest little touch. It breaks it. So ultimately, there's not going to be any resistance one day to his reign. So in light of God's divine promise of eternal kinship, here's another question for you all. What do you learn from this psalm about God's sovereignty? How does knowing God... Is sovereign help you face life's challenges? And that's what do you learn from this psalm about God's sovereignty? How does knowing God's God is sovereign help you face life's challenges? I just think it's human nature. You know, you, your first impulse many times is to try to control things form it to your own will. Yeah. Even in, in, you know, deceiving yourself into thinking, well, my will is going to be um, you know, positive and caring. You know, it's like its outcome will be right. But in sovereignty, knowing that, you know, when you see things not work out that you feel like you're trying to accomplish in the world, knowing he is sovereign over all of that. Yes. You know, yeah. You are obedient, but he works out what really happens. Yeah, that's a great point. Anybody else? It's a good question for us to ask. And it's not just for world events happening around us. It's actually for, you know, what? how can we answer this when we have trials of our own? When, when, when things seem like nothing's working out in our own lives. God's sovereignty takes away our fear. Mm-hmm. It should help us to submit as well. Just uh, he's, he is sovereign. He is our sovereign. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there's nothing to be afraid of, and there's everything, to, every reason to submit. Yeah. That's a hard part to me. Very important. Submitting to God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And 
much of what he's given me and much of what he's done, I love. I mean, there's things in my life I'm like this is really tough. And, yeah. But it's, it's part of God's plan, His sovereign plan. And, and what I need to do is embrace it. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you believe in a, in a sovereign God, especially a good sovereign God, then you are, you, your next step should be to embrace whatever that sovereign plan is. And, yeah. Amen. Yeah. And I think about what Troy was, sorry, is it a good show? Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to explain that same thing to, like, like my kids, our kids. Um, it is very encouraging and reassuring to think about it if you're a believer, but then trying to tell an unbelieving child, or potentially unbelieving child, that there might be hard things in God's plan for us. Might. <laughs> I think, you know, they, they look at things like, is, I think a kid is like, is the house going to get broken into? You know, well, I don't know if that's going to happen. It might. You know, there's a bomb could land on our house. Um, and because they, <laughs> and as a kid, you know, those things are real fears potentially. And I can't stand there and say that's not going to happen. I know that if anything happens, it's all, it's part of God's plan. But if you're not, if, if you're not, uh, you know, within the first half of Psalm one. It is. It can be scary because you're not. You're not. A, you're not a protagonist of God's plan. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point, Lisa. I think I was just gonna say we. No matter what's going on, because we're the husband of eternity. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. There's hope there, and that's true. So, in thinking of all these great points, you have stability, right? You have stability when things seem out of control. You have trust. God's word always proves true. Therefore, we can trust it. You have security because God's plans will never be disrupted. Our plans may be disrupted, but God's plans aren't. You have hope for the future, as bad as things get. And we'll wrap up here shortly in the following points here. The, the fourth point is a determined submission. Mankind's determined submission. This is what God wants. This is the way that he provides those who are fighting him. This is, this is his... Uh, his, his uh, what's it called in war? Treaty. It's a treaty of peace. But it's only one-sided, right? And the only one side that you get with this treaty is submission to God. Okay? And you escape what? Sinful man escapes what? He escapes ultimately God's wrath. So what is the posture that God requires for man to adequately submit to his king? So if you notice in the second part of verse 12, it says, he requires that, the sinful man kissed the sun. What does that mean, kiss the sun? So I was looking through the commentaries. There's not a lot of depth here. I mean, they, they all mention that there's sub, uh, excuse me, it's a symbolic act of subjection and adoration. And this is true, right? You see that in movies where a king or somebody kisses the, the ring of a king's hand. And that was actually true in Persian records, right? It was the feet, the hand, the robe. But... Most commentaries don't strike at the essence of what this means. So I started thinking about this. Um, Biblical examples of like the kind of submission that God loves when it comes to a sinful man pledging allegiance to him. And what I think it means when it says kiss the son is that you are kissing the feet of Christ, right? You're kissing the feet of Christ. For an enemy, for God's enemies, for any enemy, this would be humiliating, 
right? To kiss somebody's feet would require you to abandon all pride. Not even an ounce of pride could remain. But from a position, positionally, right? When it comes to God, I mean, you can't stoop any lower. You can't stoop any lower than that at the feet of God. And the best example that I could think of in all of Scripture in producing what this kind of kiss would be is mentioned in Luke 7, 36-39. And here's the example. Now one of the Pharisees were, was requesting him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and sat behind his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with a perfume. That's the proper way to submit to God. And that is a submission that Christ accepted. Right? He loved that. God loves this kind of submission that we stoop so low and we abandon all our pride that we are literally kissing his feet if he was before us. And he responded like this to the Pharisees in verse 47 of the passage. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. When a person chooses to submit to Christ in this way, their life isn't the same. Though our sins are many, they have been forgiven where? At the feet of Christ. And so we've come to the final portrait that describes the way in which God demonstrates his kindness to his enemies. And it's this. He provides one definitive hope for all. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed. Why? Because they submit to Christ. They submit to his word like the the blessed man did in verse 1. And that causes you to be on the right side of life. God's word and his devotion to his word and the devotion to God's Savior, Christ. And with that thought, please join me as we close in a word of prayer.